Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast from a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we are finally finishing the chapter that's setting the stage for the revolution to come, including a section about a revolution that flares up in 1905, what sparks it, and how it peters out afterwards. So it's going to be a long episode to clear out this chapter, so let's get started. Political Challenges to the Old Order Joseph Conrad once wrote that, quote, It is the peculiarity of Russian natures that however sharply engaged in the drama of action, they are still turning their ear to the murmur of abstract ideas. End quote. Footnote 106. The Russian intelligentsia was famed for its fierce ideological skirmishes, but united by its opposition to autocracy and its commitment to the ideal of the autonomous individual. It was defined by its secular values and its belief that science held the key to overcoming Russia's economic and social backwardness, and by its commitment to raise the cultural level of the people through education and social improvement. The term intelligentsia acquired broad circulation from the 1860s, referring to a narrow stratum defined primarily by its possession of cultural capital, that is, the status it enjoyed by virtue of education and talent, rather than of the possession of material assets. Many of the intelligentsia did in fact come from privileged backgrounds, although an increasing number hailed from more humble origins. An example of a rather humble member of the intelligentsia was Lenin's father, Ilya Uyanov, the son of a Chuvish tailor, he studied at Kazan University and became a teacher of mathematics and physics, writing a couple of works on meteorology. In 1869, he was appointed inspector of schools in Simbursk province, and in 1882 was awarded hereditary noble status for his work in education. Among other achievements, he set up a training college for Chuvish teachers and national schools for Mordvins and Tatars. Ulyanov typified the liberal intelligentsia in his concern to improve society through practical reforms in areas such as education, public health, women's rights, and the expansion of civil and political freedom. By the late 19th century, this educated, civic-minded public, referred to by contemporaries as the Obschestvo, literally the society or public, included lawyers, teachers, doctors, businessmen, the employees of the Zemstvost and municipal dumas, and even elements of the government bureaucracy. Footnote 107. Through journalism and books, through participation in public organization and voluntary societies, they disseminated the ideas and values appropriate to what the late 19th century populist Peter Lavrov called the critically thinking individual. Revolutionaries such as Lavrov were a minority among the intelligentsia, albeit one that could count on the sympathy of the majority. The revolutionary tradition can be traced back to the Decemberist revolt against Nicholas I in 1825, but a more useful starting point for understanding the revolutionary movement of the 20th century is the summer of 1874, when hundreds of critically thinking individuals went to the people to awaken the peasantry to the moral imperative to revolt, only to find themselves turned over to the police. 
These middle-class populists, or narodniki, as they were known in Russian, believed that the peasant commune incarnated values of collectivism, cooperation, and egalitarianism on which a socialist society could be created, thus allowing Russia to avoid the evils of industrial capitalism. One reaction to the suppression of this essentially peaceful movement was the formation in 1879 of The People's Will, a conspiratorial organization that looked to acts of terror as the means to provoke popular insurgency, convinced that if those who personified the tyranny of autocracy were struck down, this would spark a revolutionary conflagration among the people. Between 1879 and 1881, they launched a wave of killings that culminated on the 1st of March 1881 in the assassination of Alexander II, after several failed previous attempts. Far from precipitating popular revolt, however, it led to the decimation of the movement, as leaders were hanged or sent to Siberia. Footnote 108. The debacle led some notably Georgi Plekhanov, to turn to Marxism as offering a more scientific, less morally inspired theory of revolution. Plekhanov, who earned the epithet Father of Russian Marxism, argued that rural society, far from representing an embryonic form of socialism, was undergoing capitalist development and that the peasantry was beginning to split along class lines. The proletariat, not the peasantry, would be the agent of revolution, and in 1883 he helped establish the Emancipation of Labour group which began to form propaganda circles among the educated workers of the cities. In Paris in 1889, at the founding Congress of International Socialist Parties, known as the Second International, Plekhanov made the bold prediction that the Russian Revolution will triumph as a proletarian revolution or it will not triumph at all. Footnote 109. In 1887, a group of the terrorists was hanged for seeking to kill the new Tsar Alexander III, among them A.I. Ulyanov, son of Ilya and brother of the 17-year-old Vladimir Ilyich who after 1901 would be known to the world as Lenin. Vladimir was devastated by the loss of his brother and threw himself into student protests at Kazan University. Within months, he had been expelled. Initially, Vladimir was attracted, like his brother, to the terrorism of the people's will, though he moved rather quickly towards Marxism over the next two years. Footnote 110 Marxism entailed the rejection of terror as an instrument of revolution, yet Lenin's Marxism would always bear some of the elan of the Russian terrorist tradition, with its commitment to the violent overthrow of the state. In other ways too, his Marxism was marked by the Russian revolutionary tradition represented by thinkers such as Nikolai Chernyshevsky, Sergei Necheyev, or Peter Chekhev with its emphasis on the need for a disciplined revolutionary vanguard, its belief that willed action, the subjective factor, could speed up the objectively determined course of history, its defense of Jacobin methods of dictatorship and its contempt for liberalism and democracy, and indeed for socialists who valued these things. The revolutionary vanguard and 
barracks communism espoused by Tkachev, for example, was denounced by Marx and Engels. Yet Lenin credited him with having a special talent as an organizer, a conspirator, as well as the ability to enrobe his thoughts in astonishing formulations. Footnote 111. In some ways, Lenin was a more perfect Marxist than Marx himself, since despite deep theoretical reflection, he lived a life of more unremitting activism than his mentor. Footnote 112. Returning from his first trip abroad in 1895, and by now a highly effective polemicist against the populists, Lenin helped set up the Union of Struggle for the Emancipation of the Working Class in St. Petersburg, together with Luli Martov. This concentrated not on propaganda, but on agitation, a tactic pioneered among Jewish workers in the Pale of Settlement in the Western Provinces which focused on seeking to politicize workers' concrete economic struggles. Footnote 113. The new tactic seemed to pay off when 30,000 textile workers came out on strike in the capital in May 1896. By this time, Lenin and Martov were under arrest, and in January 1897, Lenin and his newlywed wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, herself an activist of some standing, were exiled to Siberia, where they would spend three years. During his exile, the new Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, RSDLP, was formed, which held its first congress in 1898 in Minsk. Its manifesto was written by Peter Struve, and would soon move on to the liberal constitutionalist movement. A key issue in these years was the stance that Marxists should take towards the liberal opposition. According to Marxist theory, the forthcoming revolution would be bourgeois democratic in character, since the socio-economic preconditions for a socialist revolution did not yet exist in Russia. This was the issue at the heart of the split that would occur in the RSDLP at its second congress in 1903 between the Bolshevik and Menshevik factions. Those who emerged as the Menshevik faction, including Lenin's close friend and comrade Martov, saw liberals as the allies of the working class in the bourgeois democratic revolution, whereas the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, had only contempt for liberals and predicted that the bourgeois democratic revolution would be made by the proletariat in alliance with the poorer layers of the peasantry. Lenin used his time in exile to write a major theoretical work, The Development of Capitalism in Russia, published in 1898, which marshaled a large amount of empirical data to demonstrate that capitalism was developing in the countryside and that class differentiation was taking place among the peasantry. This allowed him to appreciate the political potential of the peasantry, above all, the rural poor, to become allies of the industrial working class in bringing about a bourgeois revolution. Footnote 114. In December 1900, the RSDLP published the first issue of Iskra, Spark, an illegal newspaper that over the next couple of years would help draw thousands of workers into the new party. In general, workers welcomed the services that intellectuals provided, writing leaflets, making speeches, raising funds, ensuring continuity and efficiency in what of necessity had to be a secret conspiratorial organization. 
but the issue of the domination of local party branches by the intelligentsia led to worker dissatisfaction. Footnote 115. In a pamphlet of 1902, What is to be done? which became more influential than it perhaps warrants, Lenin argued that the overthrow of the autocracy required an underground organization of professional revolutionaries, steeped in Marxist theory and adept in the rules of conspiracy. Much has been made of the fact that he argued that workers, by their own efforts, could only achieve trade union consciousness, and that it fell to intellectuals to inject political consciousness into their struggles. However, it does appear that he expected a cadre of professional revolutionaries, drawn from the working class, would gradually emerge, and when the 1905 revolution erupted, he hailed the spontaneity of the working class. What Lenin certainly did believe was that workers' struggles by themselves could not make a revolution, and that to maximize their revolutionary potential, leadership by an organizationally disciplined and ideologically unified political party was necessary. The Mensheviks objected to what they saw as the tendency inherent to his model of the vanguard party for professional revolutionaries to substitute themselves for the working class, as well as to Lenin's restrictive criteria for party membership, and at the Second Congress of the RSDLP, which ended up in London, this precipitated the split in the Young Party into Bolshevik and Menshevik factions. Repression had by no means vanquished the indigenous tradition of populism, and in the mid-1890s, veteran populists began to revive their organizational activities in several regions, and from 1900 they published an influential journal, Revolutionary Russia. It was Viktor Chernov, son of a former serf, who recast populist ideology in the light of Marxist class analysis, recognizing the development of capitalism in Russia's cities. He argued that the toiling people, that is, industrial workers and peasants together, must unite to obstruct the advance of capitalism in the countryside by expropriating the landowners. This socialization of the land would have the secondary effect, he maintained, of limiting the expansion of industrial capitalism. In 1902, the Socialist Revolutionary, SR, party was formed, essentially a conspiratorial organization without a program, but now oriented firmly towards mass agitation, although the early results, a few peasant brotherhoods, were meager. The notoriety of the new party sprang from the fact that it revived the tradition of terrorism, its combat organization carrying out a series of spectacular assassinations of hated officials. Nevertheless, as with the RSDLP, until the 1905 revolution, the influence of the SRs was limited to a few thousand people. Footnote 116. The prelude to revolution was created not by revolutionaries but by the liberal opposition. In response to the famine of 1891 and the attempt by Alexander III to clip their wings, the Zemstvos moved into the political arena. In 1895, Zemstvo leaders, most of whom still emanated from the gentry, petitioned the new Tsar to allow them a national representative body. But Nicholas II dismissed their demand as a senseless dream. 
1899, students at St. Petersburg University went on strike after clashing with police, in protest at the latter's sweeping powers of arrest, detention, search, and interception of mail. In November 1904, Zemstvo leaders went a step further and convened at a semi-legal congress that called for civil liberties and a popular representative assembly. It was, however, the disastrous course of the war against Japan in 1904 that catalyzed the educated public into demanding political reform. The poor leadership, equipment, and training of the Russian army and navy were brutally exposed and seemed to exemplify the rottenness of the political system. In January 1904, the now liberal Struve helped bring into being the underground Union of Liberation, a loose-knit coalition that pressed for a constitutional monarchy, universal suffrage, and self-determination for the non-Russian ethnic groups. Liberal groups organized a series of banquets across the country, most of which endorsed the resolution of the Zemstvo Congress, and some of which demanded a constituent assembly to determine the future form of government. Footnote 117. Despite the efforts of the moderate Minister of the Interior, Prince P.D. Sviatopolk Mirsky, who had just replaced Vyacheslav von Plev, following his assassination by the Socialist Revolutionary Combat Organization, Nikola made only vague promises and refused to give ground on the critical issue of political representation. With government greatly underestimating the strength of the opposition, the stage was set for revolution. The 1905 Revolution On the 9th of January 1905, Father Georgi Gapon head of the Assembly of Russian Factory and Mill Workers, a semi-trade union set up with the approval of the Ministry of the Interior, led a procession of 150,000 workers and their families to the Winter Palace to present a petition to the Tsar. Footnote 118. They were protesting against the sacking of delegates elected to the Assembly by the workers of the Putilov plant, the largest factory in Russia with over 12,000 workers. The city was paralyzed by a general strike, and the authorities were jittery. The petition they bore was framed in the traditional language of supplication to the Little Father, but its demands, which had been formulated in consultation with the Union of Liberation, were far-reaching, and included inviolability of the person, freedom of speech, the press, and association, freedom of conscience, separation of church and state, equality before the law, an end to redemption payments, freedom to form trade unions, the right to strike, an eight-hour working day, insurance benefits, and improved wages. Singing hymns and bearing religious banners, the procession wended its way towards the city's center. The Tsar was not actually in the capital at the time, but ministers ordered the squadrons of cavalry prevent the demonstrators from getting close to Palace Square. As contingents continued to make their way towards the center, armed infantry opened fire. 200 were killed outright, and another 800 wounded. Bloody Sunday, as this massacre became known, had a traumatic impact on the country, setting off months of strikes, rebellions, demonstrations, and political organizing. 
the nascent labour movement now joined forces with the educated middle class and gentry opposition in an all-nation struggle for a constitution and civil rights, and for an end to the Russo-Japanese War. Footnote 119. See figure 1.3. Strikes build across the empire in spring and summer, initially in outrage at the events in the capital, giving birth to a more organized labor movement. Most strikes were conflicts with employers, often very bitter, over wages and working hours, but the intervention of the authorities gave them a strongly political character. In some places, strikers came out onto the streets, bearing banners proclaiming down with autocracy and down with the war. But revolutionaries were not always welcomed by strikers. Railway workers in Saratov, who struck successfully in January for a nine-hour day, an end to compulsory overtime, and wage rises, prevented socialists from intervening in their strike. Yet it was their success that inspired employees of the Southern Railway Company to go on strike in February, and they, too, achieved an eight-hour day, elected worker delegates, and a promise of freedom of assembly. When the government imposed martial law on the railways in an attempt to prevent the stoppages spreading, it precipitated the formation of the non-partisan All-Russian Union of Railway Workers. Footnote 120. Some of the most tempestuous labor unrest occurred in Lutz in Poland, where conflicts with the Russian authorities took on a nationalist coloration. The war with Japan had produced a downturn in the Polish economy, with 100,000 having lost their jobs, so Bloody Sunday provoked a furious response. On the 5th of June, troops opened fire on a demonstration, killing about 10 workers. The next day, angry workers began setting up barricades and killed some members of police and military patrols. An insurrection followed which was eventually put down by six infantry and several cavalry regiments, especially brought into Lutz. Polish nationalists came out in support of the insurgents, although clashes between the supporters of the Polish Socialist Party, Józef Piłsudski, and supporters of the more right-wing militias of Roman Dmowski broke out. Russian troops crushed the uprising mercilessly, and the number of killed and injured exceeded the casualties of Bloody Sunday by some way. Footnote 121. The wave of strikes across the empire took on increasing momentum, drawing in all types of wage earners, from skilled male metal workers to unskilled female textile workers, from artisans to white-collar employees. Central to the strike movement was a drive to establish trade unions and cooperatives, and this was spearheaded by skilled, urbanized male workers, including artisans, white-collar workers, and workers in retail, who had come under the influence of socialist agitators. Printers, in particular, played a combative role, their strike in September for better wages and conditions being the prelude to the general strike the following month. Footnote 122. According to far from complete data, there were some 14,000 strikes in 1905 in which 2.86 million workers took part. It made a huge impression on the socialist movement internationally. Footnote 123. 
The general strike that began in the oil fields of Baku in December 1904 was in many ways typical of the strikes of 1905, in that it was characterized by an urgent desire for concrete gains. The intermeshing of economic and political grievances, explosions of destructive fury, tension between workers and revolutionary parties, and bitter rivalry within the revolutionary camp. In summer 1904, the three Shendrikov brothers, who hailed from a Semerek Cossack background, arrived in Baku from Tashkent and formed the organization of Balakansky and Bibi Ibat workers. Although the local Social Democrats, mainly Mensheviks, supported this initiative, they were soon thrust aside by the Cossack incomers. The latter also attacked the small group of Bolsheviks for supposedly being contemptuous of workers' economic demands and hostile to democratic control of the RSDLP by workers. The three brothers were immensely energetic and powerful orators, especially Ilya, and their influence grew fast. By December, the organization had 4,000 members, compared with about 300 in the Baku RSDLP, and in November it began to prepare a general strike to demand sizable wage increases, a three-shift system, payment of wages during holidays and illness, the firing of those administrators the workers did not like, together with political demands for civil rights and the overthrow of the autocracy. Bolsheviks argued that a strike in winter was folly because the movement of oil through the Caspian Sea was restricted and they called for a political demonstration that might lead to an uprising. When the organization went ahead with the stoppage on the 13th of December, however, some 50,000 workers joined it enthusiastically. By drawing in the Ginchak, the Armenian Socialist Party, and the Humet, a mainly Azeri party, the Bolsheviks managed to seize leadership of the strike community, which entered into negotiations with the employers and appeared to get a good deal. The committee advised the strikers to return to work on the 28th of December, but the organization accused them of strike-breaking and proceeded to unleash arson attacks on 265 oil derricks, doing lasting damage to the oil industry. In the face of this, the Union of Oil Industrialists caved in to most of the organization's demands and signed the first collective contract in Russia. During spring 1905, as the labor movement surged across the empire, the organization, now named the Union of Baku Workers, grew, organizing strikes in a number of large oil companies. Its basic demand was for the creation of elected commissions of workers that had the right to negotiate with the employers. In November, these commissions played a key part in establishing a Soviet in Baku which was dominated by the members of the Union and by Mensheviks. During the preceding months, the local Bolsheviks had grown in strength, however, and on 13th of December 1905, they persuaded the Soviet to call a general strike. Nothing came of this, in part because the brothers Shendrikov now seemed less keen to take on the employers. Meanwhile, their Menshevik allies were losing confidence in the Union, as evidence began to mount that the brothers were receiving payments from the Union of Oil Industrialists. 
it is possible that there was substance to the Bolshevik charge that from the first the Union had been an attempt to create a pro-government Union, such as had been created by police chief Sergei Zubatov. But if the brothers did receive funds from the industrialists or the police, they certainly did nothing to curb labor militancy. Quite the contrary. The expose in 1906 of their closeness to the employers, however, did do lasting damage, and the union went into terminal decline. In an ironic postscript, after the October Revolution, the most charismatic of the brothers, Ilya, became a representative of the Semirak Cossack host under Admiral Kolchak, and in 1925 founded a Cossack union in Shanghai. Footnote 124. Meanwhile, during summer 1905, the liberal opposition grew apace and exercised a not insignificant influence on the labor movement. Student protests led to the closure of universities for several months, and the Union of Unions, which campaigned for universal male suffrage, helped professionals, white-collar workers, and a few blue-collar groups to form unions. By October, 100,000 were affiliated to the union. On the 6th of August, Tsar Nikola agreed to the formation of a consultative assembly, a concession that if made in February might well have satisfied the liberal opposition. Now it came too late. What shifted the balance of power in favour of the opposition movements was the general strike that was sparked when the Union of Railway Workers launched a strike on the 4th of October thereby bringing activity in the country to a halt. Over the next weeks, hundreds of thousands of workers walked off their jobs, demanding an eight-hour day and an end to autocracy. The strike was supported by students and professional groups, and in Moscow between the 12th and 18th of October, intellectuals and professionals met to form the Constitutional Democratic Party, known as the Cadets. This liberal party demanded universal suffrage, a constituent assembly, land reform, and many radical social reforms. During the October general strike, a novel form of organization came into existence, one that was to have far-reaching significance for the future revolutionary movement. On the 13th of October, a Soviet was formed in St. Petersburg by Menshevik labor leaders. It soon acquired the appurtenances of a revolutionary government, forming a militia, distributing food supplies, and publishing a newspaper that was read nationally. Significantly, however, it rejected the RSDLP political platform, declaring that there are no parties now. Soviets sprang up in some 50 cities, not only leading strikes, but also setting up militias, controlling railways and postal services, and printing newspapers. In Novorossiysk, on the Black Sea, the mayor and town Duma agreed to accept the authority of the Soviet after the local garrison mutinied. Footnote 125. The formation of Soviets may have been what finally persuaded the Tsar to listen to Vita's advice and make some serious political concessions for on the 17th of October, he issued the October Manifesto, which granted civil rights and a legislative assembly, or Duma, based on a broad but unequal franchise and a legislative upper chamber, called the State Council. 
for moderate members of the liberal opposition, alarmed by the escalation of violence in the countryside and by labor unrest in the cities, this represented a victory. For the left, it was not enough. By early November, the general strike in the capital was losing momentum, and employers were preparing a lockout. In Moscow, however, a Soviet had not yet been formed. It being late November before the Mensheviks took the initiative, this time with the support of Bolsheviks and SRs. On the 2nd of December, the Soviet movement nationally received a body blow, when 260 deputies to the St. Petersburg Soviet were arrested, including Lev D. Trotsky, who, as a chair of the Soviet, had played an outstanding role in the turbulent events. With some reluctance, the Moscow Soviet agreed to call a general strike, and was surprised and cheered when 80,000 workers responded to its call. This spurred the Bolsheviks to press ahead with what they had been calling for all year, namely an armed insurrection. On the 9th of December, following bitter clashes between troops and strikers, workers' militias set up barricades in the Presnia district of the city. In the street battles that followed over the next week, government troops fired artillery barrages, crushing the insurgents with appalling brutality. In all, some 700 insurgents were killed and 2,000 wounded, compared with 70 police and troops. Footnote 126. See figure 1.4. The repressive organs of the state remained largely intact. <coughs> The repressive organs of the state remained largely intact. From January to October, the army was used no fewer than 2,700 times to put down peasant uprisings. Footnote 127. Yet most soldiers were peasants, who resented being used against their own people, so their reliability was always doubtful. Even among the infantry, however, the branch of the army most seriously affected by disorder, two-thirds of units did not engage in unrest, and the vast majority of officers remained loyal. So the government proved able to use relatively small, well-armed detachments to great effect against poorly armed and poorly trained bandits of peasants and workers. Unrest ran deepest in the navy, where the reverberations of defeat by Japan were most acutely felt. On the 14th of June, 1905, on the battleship Potemkin, sailors of the Black Sea Fleet rebelled against their officers, the immediate cause being rotten meat and the squalid conditions on board ship. Sailors were mostly literate and had plenty of time to connect their grievances to wider political issues. The signing of the Treaty of Portsmouth in September, which ended the war with Japan, did nothing to quell the mounting unrest. Following the October general strike, the bonds of discipline snapped. There were more than 200 episodes in November and December, and 130 more between January and June 1906. Footnote 128. In late 1905, the government deemed it was wise to activate 100,000 Cossacks, whose privileges it confirmed with special charters. Even the Cossacks, however, the only socialist state to be defined by their military obligations to the state, could not always be relied upon. In June 1906, 
the Cossack of the Ust-Medvitsky district in the Don revolted, declaring that police service is incompatible with the title of Cossack as a warrior and defender of the fatherland. Footnote 129. Among soldiers and peasants, the opening of the first Duma in late April 1906 spurred a new round of turbulence in expectation of major land reform. By this date, however, the labor movement was in decline, and this enabled the government gradually to reassert its authority. From spring 1905, a colossal wave of peasant rebellion had swept across the central Black Earth region. The middle Volga provinces, Penza, Samara, Saratov, and Simbirsk, and Ukraine. Rising up in spring and early summer 1905, it fell back in late summer, but soared again in the wake of the October Manifesto. It then subsided to resume in May to August 1906. Footnote 130. Peasants seized on the fact that the repressive organs of the state were overstretched in order to settle scores with the landowners, to smoke them out of their gentry nests. In Voronezh, one of the most disorderly provinces in the central Black Earth region, rebellion was heavily concentrated in the one-third of countries that were dominated by landlords. Footnote 131. Here, peasants engaged in unprecedented assaults on landlord property, burning and destroying estates and outbuildings, illegally cutting wood, seizing meadows, pasture, and arable land, raiding barns and granaries, and engaging in rent and labor strikes. In the Baltic provinces and the Caucasus, there was an admixture of national sentiment with peasant disorders directed at the institutions and symbols of Russian authority. Footnote 132. The regions of high peasant militancy tended to be those where social differentiation within the rural population was less developed, with the majority of participants coming from the largest swath of the rural populace, the middle peasants, although wealthier peasants also took part. Footnote 133. In right-bank Ukraine, in the provinces of Kiev, Podilia, and Volyn, where agricultural capitalism was well-developed, poor peasants instigated many of the riots. Footnote 134. Young men led the way, with women playing a prominent part in collective seizures of food and fodder. Footnote 135. Notwithstanding the land hunger of the peasantry, it is doubtful that economic distress as such was the direct cause of the revolt. In parts of the central Black Earth and middle Volga province, there were crop failures in 1905, but this followed a bumper harvest the previous year, and in Ukraine, the harvest was normal. The key factor seems to have been the paralysis of the organs of authority and the impact of the revolution itself, which led to a rapid politicization of sections of rural society. The socialist revolutionaries were active on the ground, creating peasant brotherhoods and expanding aspirations in a socialist direction. By contrast, the All-Russian Peasant Union, created in July 1905, was based more in the Zemstvos, and sought to steer the peasantry away from violence towards forming a mass party that would join the all-nation struggle for a constitution and full civil and political rights, and, in due course, achieve the abolition of private landholding. Footnote 136. 
The October Manifesto said nothing about the land question. Yet, there was a wide presumption that the Duma would enact a transfer of landlords' land to the peasants. Yet, peasant aspirations went beyond the land question to embrace demands for the nationalisation of land, an elected constituent assembly, civil rights, and a political amnesty. Footnote 137. It was, above all, the convocation of the Duma in April 1906 that significantly raised the level of political consciousness. Peasant petitions to the Duma, which the rural intelligentsia and political activists helped to draw up, presented an abject picture of poverty, ruin, ignorance, and absence of rights. Major demands were for the abolition of private property in land and its redistribution to those who would work it. Even in a non-Black Earth province such as Vladimir, about 190 kilometers northeast of Moscow, more than a quarter of petitions demanded the return of cut-off lands. That is, those lands once worked by serfs that the nobility had retained in 1861. Footnote 138. Present, too, were demands for the abolition of redemption payments and indirect taxes, and for the partition of forests and hay meadows. These petitions show that the political isolation of the countryside was breaking down. By the time the revolution was quelled in 1907, the empire had endured the most intense wave of agrarian upheaval since the Pugachev Revolution of 1773-75, to and the centuries-long faith in the Tsar as Little Father had plummeted. Footnote 139. In the non-Russian borderlands, the impact of the 1905 revolution was substantial, boosting the emergence of separatist nationalism. In Ukraine, as early as 1900, a congress of student societies in Kharkiv had formed a revolutionary Ukrainian party, committed to socialism and self-determination for Ukraine. In December 1905, it transformed itself into the Ukrainian Social Democratic Workers' Party, but despite increasing support for some form of autonomy, many socialists, who were active in organizing mass strikes and land seizures, worked within the framework of the all-Russian parties, notably the RSDLP, the SRs, and the Jewish Bund. Footnote 140. The revolution was spectacularly violent in the South Caucasus, where mass strikes, armed clashes, and assassinations of officials were legion. In Guria, in Georgia, Mensheviks, teachers, and priests organized local peasants to throw out the Tsarist administration, and a revolutionary administration took over the running of the community. Footnote 141. In Armenia, the head of the empire's police deplored the fact that the socialist Dashnaktsutian movement, which rallied a broad swath of popular support, had created a quasi-independent state with its own militia, courts, and administration. In the Baltic provinces, too, revolutionary turbulence ran high. In Latvia, strikers protesting Bloody Sunday on the 13th of January were fired on by Russian troops, killing 73 and injuring 200. Through the summer, agricultural and industrial workers went on strike. Peasants refused to pay rents and sacked the estates of German landowners and the public boycotted courts and administrative institutions run by Russians. Footnote 142. On the 16th of October in Ravel, 
Tallinn, troops killed 94 and injured 200, dispersing a demonstration at which the Estonian flag was raised for the first time. The first Estonian party, the National Progress Party, also emerged. A major non-Russian population that was much less affected by the revolution were the almost 20 million Muslims in the empire, who were roughly divided between the different ethnicities of Central Asia, the Azeri Turks, and mountain peoples of Transcaucasia, and the Tatars of the Middle Volga, Urals, and Crimea. Footnote 143. The latter were already something of an exception, since incipient nationalism was already evident. The Tatars, who were scattered and interspersed with Russians, were the most socio-economically advanced of the Muslim peoples. A bourgeoisie existed in the Volga region, although in Crimea a landed nobility still preserved its privileges. Among the Tatars, reformist intellectuals known as Jadids, their name deriving from the new method that they promoted in education, had from the last decades of the 19th century begun to reconfigure Muslim culture according to ideas of progress and enlightenment, in the teeth of opposition from the uluma, Islamic scholars. In 1905, merchants, clerics, teachers, lawyers, mainly from Kazan, Ufa, and other cities in the Volga and Urals regions, founded the Itifak al-Mulimin, or Union of Russian Muslims, which called for a representative organ for all Muslims, for mullahs to have the same rights as priests, and for the easing of restrictions on education and the press. Nevertheless, there was no sign that Muslims in this region were looking for independent statehood. Footnote 144. The largest concentration of Muslims was in Turkestan, which had been incorporated into the empire in 1867, but whose conquest dragged on until 1889. Turkestan, including the ancient cities of Samarkand and Bukhara in Transoxiana, was a vast area of oasis and river agriculture bordered to the north by the desert steppe, modern Kazakhstan, and to the southwest by desert, modern Turkmenistan. The sedentary peoples of the oasis, who under the Bolsheviks would develop identities as Uzbeks and Tadziks, the latter close to Iranian rather than to Turkic culture, combined agriculture with commerce and handicrafts. A majority of the Kazakhs of the northern steppes, the Kyrgyz of the eastern plateau, both lumped together by contemporaries as Kyrgyz, and the Turkmen in the southwest tended to combine nomadic stock breeding with marginal agriculture and the caravan trade. In Central Asia as a whole, identities were defined primarily at the level of clans, villages, or oases, or at the macro level in terms of membership of the Commonwealth of Islam. Ethno-national identities would only emerge after 1917, and class identities barely at all. In this region, however, the issue of Russian colonization was stoking up conflict for the future, especially in the Kazakh steppes, which had been under Russian control longer than Turkestan, and where 1.5 million Russians would settle between 1906 and 1912, helped by the opening of the Orenburg to Tashkent Railway. Tashkent, the largest city in Turkestan, already had a sizable Russian population. The conflict to come would be between natives and settlers over land and water rights, 
as intensive cotton extraction was developed in the Fergana Valley. Footnote 145. The 1905 revolution put relations between church and state under great strain. An edict of 17th of April 1905 granted freedom of conscience to the subjects of the empire, in effect allowing those registered as orthodox to convert to another, Christian, denomination. Churchmen were furious, alarmed at the edict's implications for the rapidly growing Protestant denominations, such as Baptists and Evangelicals, and for the Uniates in Ukraine, interpreting the measure as a body blow to Russian identity. By supporting nationalists in the Duma and turning a blind eye to proto-fascists on the street, churchmen successfully blocked the attempt to enact the edict into law. Nicola further embittered relations with the church by refusing to allow a church council to convene. The last had met in 1681-82. The revolution also deepened tensions within the church. Radical clergy called for root and branch reform, while 43 seminaries were shut in November because of student protests. The occasional bishop, such as Antonin Granowski, came out against the autocracy, but the majority of the hierarchy looked askance at the revolutionary movement, and a sizable minority loudly denounced any concessions to a constitution or civil rights. Nevertheless, the church would never again be close to Nicola II and would abandon him without demur in February 1917. That the autocracy came out of the revolution relatively unscathed had little to do with clever political tactics. Throughout 1905, it proved unable to deal effectively with a vast, socially diverse movement that clamoured for political and social change. Timely concessions, early in the year, two official commissions recommended workers' representative commissions, trade unions, and the right to strike, might have prevented the escalation of political ambitions and the upsurge in violence that swept the country but the recommendations were initially shelved. Working in favour of the autocracy was the fact that neither the Liberal Union of Unions, nor the Labour Movement, nor the Peasant Movement, nor the Nationalist Movements, were particularly well organised. Each arose out of the chaos of events, and it took time for leadership to emerge, for structures to be set in place, and for aims to be clarified. Until the October Manifesto, there was loose unity around the goal of gaining civil rights and some form of democratic polity, but no unified national leadership. And the Manifesto drove a wedge between those whose aim was political reform and those who wanted social revolution. Moreover, the tempo of each movement varied, especially as between the cities and the countryside, and between the peasantry and labour movement, and this lack of synchronization also worked to the government's advantage. Significant concessions were made in the October Manifesto, yet they failed to still the social turbulence, and seeing the radicalization of the Days of Freedom, the government opted for repression as the principal means of restoring order. It was fortunate for them that the armed forces, although shaky in their loyalty, remained basically reliable. As the social movements lost dynamism, spectacular repression would ensue. And that's going to do it for this week. If 
you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. I don't say this very often, but please rate this five stars on iTunes or whatever else you use to rate podcasts. It's not even called iTunes anymore, is it? The ratings are very helpful for discoverability because algorithms just decide everything. We have to respond to their whims, and so they demand five stars. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts about various kinds of media. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.